uh, that God does want to hear us sing when everything's going well and when things aren't. And uh, we all have both of those mountaintops and valley experiences, and uh, God wants us to be rejoicing in Him even when things aren't going real well. Well, thankful for that. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our series through the Gospel of Mark and uh, the series entitled The Serving Savior. And uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter number 3. And uh, I am planning to finish chapter 3 today. Um, so that's, uh, that's a good goal. I think that we can do it, though. Uh, Mark chapter 3. And uh, if you would, as you're turning there, uh, please stand uh, out of respect if you're physically able to do so, do so uh, for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter number 3, we're going to go ahead and read this entire passage. It's a little lengthy, uh, but I think that uh, it, it'll go quick. Uh, Matthew, Mark chapter number 3, verse 20, and uh, we'll read all the way down through the end of the chapter. Mark 3, verse 20 says, And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he calleth them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemes wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said, He hath an unclean spirit. Well, there came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. The multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful to be in your house together today on this Father's Day. Lord, I do pray that you would bless this time in your word now. I pray that uh, you would help us to understand what your word is teaching us here. And then, Lord, help us to not just be good hearers, but then help us to be good doers of what we hear. And uh, we pray that you would receive all the glory and all the honor and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, today, as we continue our study in the life of our serving Savior through the book of Mark, we come to a time when Jesus faced tremendous opposition. Now, opposition has been around since before the beginning of time. In heaven, uh, a created angel named Lucifer opposed God. 
And Isaiah chapter number 14 details this account. Isaiah 14 verse 12 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And here it is, really the, the most important one that he said here. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. God says, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pits. So there was opposition even before the world was created and the stars were created. There was opposition in heaven as Lucifer desired to take the throne of God. Well, then opposition continued in the Garden of Eden when the slimy, subtle serpent opposed the word of God as he approached Eve. And then throughout the book of Genesis and really on throughout the entire Bible, we see Satan continue to oppose the work of God, the plan of God, and ultimately the people of God. Well, in the life of our Savior, we see Satan opposing him at every single turn. Uh, we see him opposing him at his arrival. Do you remember that? Uh, when uh, the wise men went and uh, came and talked to Herod, and Herod said, yes, there is a king. Uh, I want you to go and search diligently for the young child. And bring me word again where he is so that I can come and worship him. Uh, that was Satan trying to uh, kill Jesus at that moment. Of course, the Lord overrode all of that and... and uh, Jesus uh, made it through all of that. So uh, G Satan opposed the Lord Jesus uh, in his arrival, and then he opposed his authority. And we're seeing that as we make our way through the book of Mark, how that uh, Satan is opposing Jesus and his authority. And then we see that Satan endeavored to try to uh, oppose his atonement, and then he ultimately tried to oppose his ascension and even his resurrection as well, by putting that stone in front of that door, thinking, well, that'll secure him. Yeah, right. Uh, Jesus is much more powerful than any huge stone. Uh, but Jesus wasn't the only one to face opposition as well. The Apostle Paul did too. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 11, here he details some of the opposition that he faced in his ministry as he served the Lord. He said, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure. Now, these aren't like uh, military stripes that are what you want, you know, as you rank up. Uh, Seth is in CAP, and sometimes he gets uh, different pins and different things uh, put on his uniform. That, that's a good thing. Well, here, when, when, when Paul says, I, I've gotten stripes... Those weren't good things. <laughs> this was when he was whipped and tortured for Christ. He said, uh, of the, uh, he said uh, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft, of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. See, Paul knew what it was like to face opposition. And it was the Apostle Paul who gave this wonderful, encouraging promise to young Timothy as he was getting started in his ministry. 
He said, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 12, Yea, and all that live will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, what an encouragement, Paul. <laughs> Thanks for those encouraging words. The truth of the matter is, opposition has been around since the beginning of time, really from before the beginning of time, and, uh, and it will continue to be around. Many others since have also faced tremendous opposition. But here in our passage today, as we are in Mark chapter number 3, where did the opposition come from? Well, we're going to see today that it came from three different sources. And uh, those same sources are the same sources where opposition comes in our lives today as well. Let's go ahead and look at them this morning. Where did this opposition come from? First of all, opposition came from his friends. It came from his friends. If you uh, look in verse number 20, this is right after Jesus. And last week, remember, we, we talked about how he called the, and chose the 12 who would uh, ultimately uh, be the, his voice and his, his ambassadors after his, after his departure from this world. Well, after he calls them, the Bible says in verse number 20, the multitude cometh together again so that they could not eat, could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. Now, opposition hurts no matter where it comes from. It doesn't feel good. No one likes it. No one likes to be confronted and to uh, experience persecution or, uh, in this case, opposition here. And it definitely hurts when it comes from without, from people you don't necessarily know. It hurts, but it especially hurts when it comes from those closest to you. And such is the case here. Uh, Jesus has some friends that are gathered together and they oppose him. Now, first of all, I want us to see under this uh, that there was a big crowd. In verse number 20, the Bible says, And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. Now, these crowds that were gathered around seem encouraging. Like, man, things are really ramping up for Jesus. Things are looking good. I mean, he's becoming more popular. Uh, He's, becoming, he's having a greater influence. This is great. Well, those crowds also equal more stress, <laughs> uh, more work, more busyness, a lack of rest. They couldn't even, this crowd came on them and, and they really had no time to even eat a sandwich or some bread or fish or whatever you're planning to eat after church today. Um, not to get you thinking about lunch too soon. I did it, though. So you're all going, oh, what are we having for lunch today? Where should we go after lunch today or after church today? Uh, don't, don't think about that yet, okay? Uh, but here this crowd was so big that Jesus and his disciples weren't really even able to eat because there was so much need, so many needs that were represented in this crowd. Now, here's a spoiler alert. I do want to encourage you to keep coming every Sunday as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark. But uh, as we will see in our journey through the life of Christ, at the beginning there was a lot of people curious and following to see 
uh, Jesus perform another miracle. So there were great crowds at the beginning of his ministry. But then as time goes on, um, those crowds begin to dissipate and begin to end up being where when Jesus is there on the cross and at the end, all that's left are just a few faithful ladies and only one disciple as Jesus is crucified on the cross. What happened to all those crowds? What happened to the feeding of the 5,000? Where are all those people? Well, many of them were the ones yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. Um, crowds can definitely be deceitful. They seem like successful. They seem like real interest, but a lot of people sadly like to hide in the crowd. I'll just kind of throw this out as a, as a side comment, but uh, I believe that's why a lot of people in our generation like the megachurches. I'm not against megachurches per se, but uh, one, of the, one of the things that I think does draw people to the megachurch mentality is it's easy to be in the crowd and to get lost in that crowd and to hide. No one really knows if I'm there or not. No one really knows what's really going on in my life. There's really not that family accountability. Uh, I know that, I, I imagine um, that pastors in these churches try to fight against that and try to establish ways to have this accountability, but the, the, the truth is it's very difficult with so many people there to really get to know the people in the church, and a lot of people like that, you know? Hey, I just like to be here, show up, and you know, do my church time, and uh, I don't want you to know, get to know me too much. Um, in modern day Christianity, it seems that really, in order to be successful, to be a successful church, you need to have the big three: you need to have buildings, you need to have a lot of bucks, and you need to have a lot of bodies. And at this point, Jesus has what would be considered a very successful ministry at this point. The crowds were, you know, thronging him. And the multitudes were coming to him. But I want to remind us in the scriptures, nowhere do we find the Lord commending a church for the fact that they're huge. Nothing wrong with being large, but there obviously is a serious danger for large churches. They can get to the point where they have the buildings, they have the bucks, and they have the bodies. And they can get to the point where they don't really need the Lord anymore. I believe you can make a case that the church at Laodicea was a very large church because they had all of those things. In fact, Jesus says this about that church. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have Need of nothing. And Jesus said, You know not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He said, You've gotten to the point where you're so big, you've got all these crowds, and you think you're just such so successful, and we have need of nothing. We've got it made in the shade. The problem is, you've kicked God out of your church. You've gotten to the point where You've got all these crowds and you think you're such a successful church. The problem is Jesus is on the outside and there's no room for him in the end. 
It was that church that Jesus was outside knocking on the door trying to get back in. They had all those things, but they didn't have Christ. They had the crowds. They had the bodies. They had the bucks. But they didn't have the most important one. Now, as Jesus has all these crowds here, this, this big crowd is there, it creates a lot of work. Now, I, don't get me wrong. I do want to see us as a church family grow numerically, but not to the neglect of our spiritual growth. If we only grow spiritually and do not grow numerically, I'm okay with that. But if we grow numerically and not spiritually, I'm, I'm concerned. Well, but we'll, the offerings will go up. Well, we may need to get a bigger building. Well, we may need more ministries. Hey, that, all of that stuff is good and wonderful and exciting. But if we're not growing spiritually, if we're not getting grounded in truth, and we're not really living godly Christian lives, what good is it? It becomes another religious circus. I don't want to be a religious circus. I want to be a godly church, a, healthy, a spiritually healthy church. So there were big crowds. But then notice, secondly, there was a bogus conclusion. Verse number 21. <clears throat> they couldn't even eat bread. So when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. Now, here's what beside himself means. It means he is delirious or deranged. He was out of his mind. Now, these were his friends who said this. It wasn't necessarily the, the people who were against him. It was his friends who said, he's just acting weird. He's just not thinking right. He is beside himself. Now, if they would have said that about anyone else, okay. But if anyone in history that was not beside himself, it was Jesus. He was always in his right mind. I remember when I was in the fifth grade, and, and uh, this, this, this story that I'm about to share with you will probably click with all of you go, no wonder. Makes so much sense now. Here's what it was. I was playing, I think it was lunchtime or maybe the early morning recess. We were playing uh, baseball, and uh, I had brought a racquetball, one of those blue racquetballs to play, and we had a plastic, a yellow plastic wiffle ball bat. You guys know what I'm talking about, those skinny bats? But we didn't, we weren't content with, <coughs> excuse me, we weren't content with it being just a hollow wiffle ball bat. No, we cut it, we cut the top of it, and then we stuffed it with newspapers so that it would be more solid of a bat. And then we put the top back on, and we taped it really good so that the top would stay on, and uh, that was our bat. And uh, we were playing baseball, and I remember I was in the outfield. I think I was playing like shortstop. And uh, one of the, the, the pitcher was, was pitching the ball, and uh, the, the ball hit the batter. And uh, just like in professional baseball, you know, they get offended. You know, they think that they did it on purpose. Sometimes they do. Um, well, that's what the batter thought. The batter thought he hit him on purpose. So he charged the mound. We're in like fifth grade, okay? <laughs> he charged the mound with bat in hand. He was angry. And uh, he, was, he was trying to hit this, bat, this pitcher with this bat. Well, I'm over there in, 
playing shortstop. And I look down as this is all happening, and I realize, oh, my shoe's untied. So I bent down to uh, start tying my shoe. Well, this little scene is, is kind of happening, you know, I'm shortstop. That all kind of happens over by the pitcher's man. Well, that pitcher starts running, and he runs towards me. And I'm over there just innocently tying my shoe, okay? And uh, that, that pitcher gets right in front of me, and he stops. And so the batter goes, and he takes a big swing at that pitcher. The pitcher moves right out of the way. And that bat comes down and hits me right on the head, just right here. And again, it's not a hollow wiffle ball bat. It's got all that newspaper in there, and he swung pretty hard. And uh, I was sitting there, and I kind of get up, and I'm like, I mean, I I don't know if I saw little birdies twirling around, but I kind of think I did. (laughs) And uh, things kind of went black, and uh, I'm just kind of like stumbling around. And all I could say is, I want my ball. Give me my ball. And uh, all, like the whole, all the boys that were playing all kind of stopped because they knew that I got hit in the head with the baseball bat. And so finally they give me my ball and I'm walking to my classroom. Like, why would I want to walk to my classroom? Who wants to walk to their classroom? No one wants to walk to their classroom. Well, I what did because I wanted to go. And uh, finally I went to my uh, teacher and I was like, I got hit in the head with baseball bat and they sent me home and uh, my I had a big old honking goose egg here I mean it was huge and uh, you're like okay now I know you are why you are the way you are that really makes fifth grade baseball bat accident got it okay in that moment I was not in my right mind I don't know that I've ever been in my right mind since okay um And, uh, you know, our commander-in-chief, I think you can make a case that he's not always in his right mind either. Um, uh, Sadly, he is the uh, leader of our country. And uh, it's kind of funny, but kind of not funny at the same time. Now, the thing is, Jesus never was never beside himself. He was never delirious. He was never deranged. He was always... In the right mind, he was always sane and always will be. And yet, as he starts to continue on in his ministry, people who knew him, who grew up with him, kind of going, well, he's kind of off his rocker. He used to just be a carpenter. But now all of a sudden, he's doing all these things, and uh, now he's kind of getting on fire for Christ, for, for not for Christ, he is Christ, uh, getting, you know, doing things that are just out of the norm. And so he's just beside himself. And so let's get him out of here. You know, he's kind of embarrassing us. So let, let's get him out of here. And that, that's what they were trying to do. Now, sometimes when a Christian like you and I get really on fire for God, we develop strong standards in our life or have a lot of zeal for the Lord and desire to witness to everyone we come in contact with. People around us get a little uncomfortable and then start calling us names. Legalistic, fanatic, preacher boy. And on and on it goes. And we can start getting opposition from our own friends. That's what was happening to Jesus. And it hurts to be opposed by your own friends. And yet when we are, we're not alone. 
because Jesus was opposed by his friends too. So opposition came from his friends in verses 20 and 21, but then opposition secondly came from his foes, from his enemies. Verse number 22. The scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Bezalbub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. Now, this isn't the first time, obviously, that he's experienced opposition from the scribes um, and the Pharisees. Uh, they, they were constantly doing this, but it's really starting to ramp up. Um, in the past, though, these scribes and Pharisees seem to have been opposing Jesus reactively. In other words, when Jesus did something, they reacted to it with opposition. But now the opposition ramps up, and it has become proactive opposition. It has been premeditated opposition. This is planned opposition. See, the scribes, the re religious establishment, or the, uh, if we can borrow a term from recent days, the religious swamp of that day, purposely came down to oppose and accuse Jesus from Jerusalem. Verse 22, look at it again. The scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, and they had this little message that they had prepared back in Jerusalem, and when they finally got there, it was time to deliver their message. And it was a message of opposition. And here's what the message was. It was, he hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And so we see, first of all, in the opposition from his foes, the blatant rejection of Christ. There was a blatant rejection of Christ. Not only did they think he was loony, that's what his friends thought, that he was a loony, but they thought he was, uh, he was Satan himself. And that he had the spirit of Beelzebub. By the way, Beelzebub means the Lord not of just flies, but of dung flies. And they attributed his power that he was casting out devils to the Lord of dung flies. So this was an absolute attack on the character and the authority of Jesus Christ. This was the worst kind of blasphemy there was. Attributing and ascribing the work of Almighty God to the Lord of dung flies. And they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment. And it was blatant. But then we see, secondly here, the blistering response of Christ. As Jesus hears this, uh, notice what it says here in verse 23. He called unto them, he called them unto him. He said, hey, guys, come on a little closer. And said unto them in parables. Now, <clears throat> notice how he dealt with them. He didn't explode in anger. Now, if it were me, you know, of course, we know that Jesus did overthrow the money, uh, money changers' tables on two different occasions. So we know that he uh, can get angry. But here, he doesn't, he doesn't choose to do that. He didn't, he didn't fly off the handle. It, it was blistering, not in the manner in which he gave it, but in the message that he gave. And uh, that's a good lesson for us as well. When we're personally attacked, which is what Jesus was personally attacked in this moment, 
he didn't he didn't try to go irate and uh, ballistic on them. You when you and I are attacked, what's maybe our first reaction? To go ballistic, to let things escalate a little bit too quickly. You know, have you ever seen a situation that that escalated too quick? We were at lunch with the uh, Guzmans yesterday, and we were waiting in line, and and, and the, the restaurant was really crowded. There, there was somebody in line ahead, ahead of us, and um, there were just a few tables that were open, and uh, they had their kids go and reserve a table for their family while they were waiting in line to order their food. Well, these these boys went and go sat at this table, and they're they're little guys. They're you know four, five, six, something like that. And uh, the, the, the lady sitting next to them, in, in the table next to them, kind of chided this family for doing that when there's not very many tables left. And uh, it, it really, honestly, escalated too quick. That, that dad got real self-defensive because that was his boys there. And, and you understand that to a point, but it, it just it escalated too quick. And they got a little uncomfortable in that restaurant. It, it wasn't the coldest restaurant in the world, but it got, you know, it started getting a little heated in there. <laughs> and it was like, oh boy, uh, what are we going to do? Especially in Oklahoma with everybody caring. It's like, um, <laughs> what's going to happen? Uh, we all made it out alive, and the food was awesome. Go see them for uh, a good Mexican restaurant recommendation. Um, but Jesus here, as he's personally attacked, he doesn't go ballistic. Here's how he does it. He asks them some questions, and he said in verse 23, basically he's like, let me ask you just kind of a question. How can Satan cast out Satan? Is that really even possible? That's what you're insinuating here, scribes. How can Satan cast out Satan? Like, that's impossible. And then he goes and says, if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Satan, um, I'm sorry, verse 24, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And then he goes and mentions the house in verse 25. And then verse 26, he kind of gets, gets to the point here. If Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. So he said, you guys have no idea what you're even saying. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. You, you think that I, since 